Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Dairy Pod. I'm Rory MacDonald from the Dairy Australia farm team. The June Situation and Outlook report has just been released and this tells us that farmer confidence is riding high with improving operating conditions and robust domestic demand continuing to underpin a reasonably strong market outlook. With so much of our industry dependent on trade, especially to Asia, we thought it would be a good time to speak to Stuart Davey, the man charged with helping exporters to navigate the red tape and access dairy export markets. Stuart has recently been appointed as Dairy Australia's International Market Access Manager and Program Manager for the Dairy Export Assurance Program, which aims to make it easier to move milk from your dairy vat into supermarkets around the world. Talking to Dairy Australia industry analyst John Droppert, Stuart offers an insider's look into one of the many challenging aspects of international trade, market access. Stuart Davey, welcome to Dairy Pod. Thanks, John. Nice to speak with you. Uh, most people without much of a connection to the exporting part of the supply chain probably have a fairly limited understanding of what it takes to get a product to market. So. As someone who's got quite an extensive background in this area, can you start by just giving us a brief overview of, of what is the process? What is required to get a product um, you know, fit for export or, or export, to export it? Well, I guess there's two key areas, John. First of all, you've got to be um, in a state where you are able to export your product or have your product leave Australia, so you need permission to do that. And then you need to satisfy the requirements of the country you are wanting to export to. So if we take the first one, um, you know, in, in Australia, everybody who produces a dairy pro- product, be that um, milk at a farm or uh, in a processing facility, or in fact even transports the milk from the farm to the to the processing facility, is required to have a licence by a state dairy regulatory authority, um, and that requires um, achievement of a particular food safety standard. If you want to then become an exporter of those products, there's an additional requirement. Um, to meet the Export Control Act, which is um, uh, governed by the Commonwealth Government of Australia. And what we see there is that there's a significant um, jump from what's required to be a domestic producer to be becoming an export producer. And I, when I say there's a jump, I don't mean that there's a gap in uh, the food safety requirements. Of course, we want the same level of food safety uh, guarantees for domestic producers, sorry, domestic consumers just as much as we do for our export consumers. But it's really important that people who uh, want to export a product have a full understanding of a couple of things. And obviously the first one is what are the uh, standards required in the market that they want to send their product to. And you might be surprised that um, the requirements from a compositional level to a labelling level, etc., actually differ from market to market. Yeah. There are some universal standards around the world, but every country has the um, right to develop their own internal standards, and they do, just as Australia does through Food Standards Australia and New Zealand. Um, so it's really important that people are aware of what those requirements are. The second is that if you are going to um, go to a particular market you need to understand what their specific standards are but even beyond the regulations there are a number of things that might be imposed on an importer and these things ultimately get deemed as a technical barrier to trade Um, and these might be things like mandated shelf life of product when it lands in a particular market it could be mandated uh, 
religious-based standards, so halal compliance or kosher compliance, etc., if you want to trade in that market. It may not be a specified regulation, but with the 80-90% of the population being of a particular faith, um, importers won't accept product that don't have that guarantee. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's very broad and it's really important that people go into it with their eyes open and uh, it's a significant hurdle and a significant jump for people to make that step from domestic to exporter um, and it is requires a lot of thinking not only from a business planning point of view but a lot of preparation of the facility and particularly documentation around the food safety systems that exist. And all all, co- all cost money too, naturally to time and money, yep. um, and and resources to be able to do that, and um, it, it requires a particular skill to be to be honest. And more often than not, it falls to the quality assurance department of businesses. But smaller organisations, you know, often have uh, people. Uh, undertaking multi-skilled roles so you know you could be the uh, production person but you're also the quality person by and you know by default that has its um challenges as well um but these these roles really need to get across the regulation aspect as well and typically quality focuses on removal or protection against contaminants which is absolutely ideal and of course we need that sort of function but the regulatory aspect um, and compliance to the regulations is is a whole new set of very specific skills. And and I suppose the other key feature of this space is it's not static either, these, these, these regulations, these requirements change over time. Very much so and it's, you know, it's that's part of my role here I guess at DA is that I look after in broad sense market access for the industry and that means we monitor changes of food regulations for all of the countries that we deal with around the world, and there's over a hundred of those. Um, and you know, in more, most cases, the changes that exist are not necessarily directly um, a direct impact on our uh, industry or our ability to comply with them. But from time to time, some of the changes are what I might broadly describe as unreasonable for the Australian context. So, as an example, it might be addition of uh, mandatory testing requirements for chemical residues for products that aren't even licensed to be used here in Australia. So, yeah. you know, those sort of testing um, elements are very expensive to do um, and it, it just offers nothing by way of additional food safety assurance to an importing country if we don't even have those um, chemicals used anywhere in our egg sector in Australia. So. In those cases, I would work with the Australian government and encourage them to push back against the importing country and just um, in a, in a um, respectful manner, because everyone has the right to Im- impose the sorts of regulations that they want, just the same as Australia does mm-hmm. for imports here. But we would write to them and say, look, recognise um, why this may be of a concern for you. We all, you know, we support the concept that that chemical has a toxic nature and you wouldn't want it in dairy foods, but in the Australian context, it's not even used here, it's not licensed for use here. Um, we request an exemption from, from that as a mandatory requirement for all products that come from Australia. And in most cases, that is received pretty positively. Yep. Um, and that's the sort of uh, activity that we would undertake in market access. So in that sort of process, um, you know, the, it's a government-to-government process, um, and so the you know the federal department is the is the shop front, if you will. But it's you know a lot of the time, you know, DA or yourself is 
providing the technical support and, and, and I suppose consulting back to the, the manufacturers as well where there's a need for, uh, for that. Yeah, very, very much so, John. And, and you know, what we see is that um, all of those sorts of negotiations are absolutely at a government-to-government level. But in our case within the department here in Canberra, we have a, a team of people with responsibility for dairy, but they also look after fish and eggs. Yep. Um, and you know, they uh, have an oversight of our, our industry for sure, but it's not possible for them to have the level of engagement that we can across um, the manufacturing sector right, and right through to the farm base. Um, and we act as a technical conduit from the industry to the government and highlight the things that are seriously problematic to us. So they're not, the government is not going to know um, the level of usage of a particular chemical or um, issues around um, costs for mandatory changes in packaging or any of those sorts of things. So we would gather that information on behalf of the industry, feed it into the government and you know, uh, create a, an argument for them to be able to be pushing back or responding to, to these potential changes um, and be able to do so in a way that demonstrates the level of impact it would have on our industry. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, some of these can be quite significant changes too. And, you know, I've, in, in my time at DA, I've sort of, you know, had sort of tangential involvement in quite a few of these or seen them come and go. Um, but one of the biggest ones has probably been the, the changes a few years ago to infant formula access into China. And I, I know you were sort of um, I- involved in that for quite a while. Um, probably still involved. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a gift that keeps on giving, that's for sure. Um, look, and in many ways, you know, I have to respect what China has tried to do here. Um, and, you know, by way of a little bit of history, it really began back in about 2015. 200 BC. It feels a bit like that. No, 2015, when they introduced their um, food safety law. And at that point, um, in China alone, there was over 3,000 brands of infant formula available to their consumers. And collectively, for the rest of the world, that number was more like about 300. So, you know, there was a situation there where um, infant formula offerings was completely out of control and um, Wild West sort of very much so and you know I, I, at that point I was working with, within a manuf- the manufacturing sector and I know that you know we were constantly approached by um, an endless supply of people wanting us to make an infant formula on their behalf make a quick buck and then get out of the industry and that's really not what you want for the most one of the most vulnerable consumer categories and so they undertook to review what the um, requirements were and of course you know pretty famously there were issues around adulteration of product with things like melamine etc so they really needed to regain the confidence of their consumer base so they undertook to revamp their food safety uh, laws and what that has meant is that there is a serious focus on all dairy um, but very specifically infant formula so at that point it was became mandatory for all um, export dairy export uh, establishments to be registered not only with the Australian government but with the Chinese government as well. Australia which achieved that um, and which is really positive. But in the infant formula sector in particular, each individual manufacturing site was required to be registered and audited by the Chinese government. So there's a establishment level approval, um, which was then further upgraded in, um, I think about 2017, 2018, 
where they have now additionally required that you have to have your individual recipe licensed as well as the establishment. And that recipe has to be associated with a particular establishment. So you can't have the same recipe made at half a dozen different sites. Or if you're a a marketer and have your product contract made, you can't just switch from one to another easily. Um, So that's quite a uh, detailed requirement. And the challenge for that for Australia is that Um, Of course, that involves a face-to-face audit from the Chinese authorities here, and um, they're doing that for all manufacturing sites around the world, so there's a significant waiting period now for them to come and grant or do that audit with the intent that they grant that approval. So um, it has been a slow process, um, and uh, we've been successful in having a number of establishments successfully been granted that license and a number of uh, recipes out of Australia be licensed as well. But there's also a strong sense, while this hasn't been um, very clearly publicly stated, there's a real sense that the Chinese are looking to try and cap the number of infant formula recipes or brands um, available to their consumer base at no more than a thousand. And yep. you know the general consensus is they're pretty close to that now. So my honest belief, um, rather than it being stated anywhere, but my firm belief is that you know the the pace of additional um, uh, permissions being granted is going to be very very slow. Yeah, yeah. I think Australia was fairly successful early on in that process in getting a few facilities. A- absolutely, and you know I have to say I think we were um, very successful in in getting a number of establishments across that uh, line. Very. Uh, very quickly, and I think there's over a dozen um, now that are approved as, as dairy exporters or infant formula exporters out of Australia, and that compares pretty favourably to most other markets around the world. I think only New Zealand might have one or two more than us, but but not a significant number. Um, and so, you know, I think that's actually a really positive reflection of the level of uh, focus that our manufacturing sector has on um, food safety and, and, and compliance generally. But um, it is certainly um, in infant formula now from, from those sorts of from that sort of perspective is very close to the sorts of requirements that might be made for a pharmaceutical grade manufacturing site. yeah yeah and so it's, it's certainly not the case now that just anyone can say oh infant formula is doing well and you know I'm going to get some made or, you know, buy a, a sort of a plant somewhere and cobble it together. And That's right. And, um, you know, and I think for probably good reason as well. I'm, I'm generally supportive of that. But um, that being the case, I am you know, very encouraging of, of innovation being allowed to exist and, 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 you know, we should be able to be at the forefront of what is available to us in terms of ingredients and functional components that that allow us to be value-added manufacturers of these sorts of products. Um, But it certainly is a long way from the days of the early um, 2000s or and over that next decade, I guess, where people would randomly just appear and say, hey, I've got this great idea, can uh, you copy that infant formula over there and I'll call it product X and um, something something gold. Yeah, and and realistically, that was exactly what the market was like. There were people 
happy to send two or three container loads of product um, then run out one production run of a particular product walk away with a reasonable profit from that and then I move on to selling hardware or whatever it was and, yeah. and it's not I, I don't honestly believe that that's the appropriate way to be um, one developing a brand and two um, servicing a, a pretty vulnerable group you know th- there's also um, the broader uh, aspect of what does that mean in terms of uh, people's general perspective of Australia as a dairy export nation, and yeah, I was going to I was going to mention that. I mean, they, they, these they're, they're selling a lot of these these brands that you, you mentioned were you know they put making no secret on the tin that it came from Australia, and that was a big part of the value proposition. Absolutely. Um, so they they're not just representing themselves; they're they're representing very much the whole so. Australian industry. Very much so, and it is a really key. Um, consideration for people making that transition from being a domestic producer into becoming an exporter. There has to be um, a, uh, a recognition and an acceptance that they now have a broader responsibility for managing that overall reputational risk of the Australian dairy sector um, and to some extent the broader ag sector um, rather than just their own brand because I can assure you if there was a particular issue with um, let's say product X that I've made um, and sent off to a market somewhere and it's caused some issue or it's been recalled for a particular reason in a market, the newspaper headlines or the media headlines that are associated with that won't necessarily focus on product X. It'll be dairy product from Australia has caused this, this and this. Um, And the flow on effect from that is quite dramatic and it takes a long time to recover from that. So the June Situation Outlook Report touches on some of the logistical headaches like container shortages um, you know, impacting exporters in the short term and then there's the, the longer term issues you know like the, affecting the middle class for example as a result of the COVID pandemic um, in, in consumer markets and there's, there's also you know the political tension in the background um, that's become more prominent around market access in recent years and it's um, you know, that's not not just between uh, any two particular countries. It's it's been quite a common thing across the uh, across the world in, in probably the last five years or so. How much of a political element is there to, to market access arrangements? And um, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of the, the the some of the you know the differences can, that can arise based simply on different standards or different ways of doing things in different countries. I mean, does you know, where's that balance, or is there is there even a, a sort of rule on whether you know what 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 element of market access is political and and what element is um, you know cultural, for example? Sure. Um, look, I think it's undeniable that um, you know all exports uh, form the overall trade from Australia to a particular market, and so if there's some geo uh, political issues that are uh, bubbling away. Um, it's probably impossible for there not to be some uh, aspect of the trade of, of our products being focused on. That doesn't necessarily mean we will be called out unreasonably for um, a, a, a breach that we may have caused ourselves. You know, I mean, like sending product with false labelling or something like that. We should appropriately be called out for that. Um, but. I, I would think what is more likely to be the case, and often perhaps perceived as a politically driven outcome, is that what we see is um, if you are an importer and you experience a particular uh, issue with a contaminant from a product anywhere in the world, um, that heightens your sensitivity to that particular thing. So let's give a, 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 whole, a, a 
a totally um, uh, fictitious example. If you're if a market's importing dairy products out of the EU and suddenly it's um, got a particular uh, chemical residue in it or a particular microbial um, contamination in it, that hasn't been an issue for Australian product at all. What we might see is that that market will completely shift their frequency of testing of all dairy imports around the world, um, purely in a response to they've got a heightened sensitivity to that. Now we as an exporting country might say that's ridiculous, we've had no issue of that particular microbe here, yep. but it's just the cost of doing business and you know Australia has um, exactly the same right to do the same thing here. Now for instance we um, are very proudly FMD free and so we might if we thought there was a heightened um, uh, incidence of that around the world suddenly start increasing our testing frequency yep. for FNT because you know we are driven very strongly to try and protect our market from that and fair enough too. Um, so each market has the ability and, and right to be able to make these sorts of changes. The other important thing for us to be aware of that things like food safety are not clearly defined and so for us here in Australia food safety and our regulations reflect this are very much about trying to ensure the uh, protection of our consumers against contamination from things like chemical, um, chemical contamination, microbial contamination or uh, some sort of physical contaminant like you know, metal filings. Yeah, yeah. That, that's right, those sorts of things that might come off um, equipment. In other markets, food safety could be perceived in a much broader context. So for instance, with markets that have a uh, uh, consumer-driven religious requirement for halal or, or kosher certification, those elements are definitely seen as re related to food safety, whereas yes. we may not, we may not um, perceive that. Um, things like traceability or uh, errors in, in packaging or labelling of, of products also are strongly connected to food safety in some cases. And in some cases that could be correct if it was an allergen-related thing, but yes. I'm, I'm talking about markets that might make uh, a food safety um, determination because there's a incorrect colour being used on 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 a product or right. or yeah. um, uh, a spelling error in a particular thing or an incorrect ordering of ingredients or something like that that don't necessarily represent a food safety risk, but in their determination it is. So what we might perceive then as something is ridiculous or politically driven, the reality is it's just a cultural difference and that's how they perceive food safety. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, if I hook back to that first discussion we had around um, what does market access really mean, it's the driver for why it's important that if you're going to export to a particular market, that you take total understanding of what it is that... Um, is required in that market, not purely the regulations, but how are they interpreted? What is the intent of those regulations? And often that means you need to have a really strong relationship with a very high quality importer who can um, help you in having that local knowledge or that understanding locally. Yeah. You've recently taken on a new role managing the Dairy Export Assurance Program, and that's um, it's a, a joint DA and government initiative um, it's uh, you know sort of advertised as uh, you know aiming to cut red tape and streamline audit arrangements uh, which ultimately helps open up trade um, market access opportunities for farmers it's a very new initiative so uh, you know only just getting started but what does 
what does success look like for, for that program for DEEP? Um, and, and why should farmers care about something like that? It's obviously not top of mind on a day-to-day basis. No, it's um, not. And, and, and I you know, completely understand that regulation is a little <laughs> bit of a dry topic and not everyone's favourite discussion around the dinner table. But, but DEEP, which is the acronym for the program, which stands for the Dairy Export Assurance Program, is really a um, collaboration between the a team of people in Door and a small team of people that we've developed here at Dairy Australia. Door being the Department yes. of Ag. Sorry, for, yep. For the yep. uninitiated. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> the Department of Ag, Water and the Environment, I think, officially this week. Um, so um, it's really looking at how do we take the um, the food safety or the, the export assurance process that has existed in Australia here for probably at least 20 years and how do we um, review that, try and remove some of the... Uh, clunky elements of that, so the red tape um, elements of that, uh, and use perhaps um, technology and and the key drivers of what is it that we're trying to achieve here, and ultimately that's an assurance around the food safety status of our products. How do we use technology and a rethink of what's currently occurring to devise a a system that's fit for purpose for the next 20 years? Um, So it's really made up of three different programs, uh, or sorry, projects, and the first is really helping industry to understand what are these requirements for becoming exporters. So how do we smooth that transition from being a domestic producer to an exporter? Because what we're seeing is that over the past couple of years, there's a significant number of failure of people trying to do that, certainly in their first attempt. Most people achieve it, um, but it takes two or three attempts. And you know, um, from an industry perspective, really keen to make sure that we get a much higher proportion of people being able to achieve that in their first attempt. And there's a lot of time and effort goes into doing that. So how do we remove some of the the challenge that people are finding in in doing that? The second part is looking at trying to rationalise audits, and you you referred to audits. Um, And right throughout the supply chain, from farm right through to um, distribution, there's a requirement for audits to demonstrate compliance. And that might be at a regulatory level, but more and more it's also at a commercial level where um, businesses or large trading partners around the world, um, large large buyers of dairy products, are uh, mandating that people comply to a number of international standards like the British Retail Consortium or um, the Global Food Safety Initiative have have a standard as well. And so there are a number of them around. Um, and so a particular facility might be might be um, audited anywhere up to 10, 12 or sometimes even 14 times a year. So yep. if you, you know, factor in your local ones as well, for say Coles or Woolies or Aldi's all have mandatory requirements as well. And more often than not, they're looking at very, very similar things. So what I'm keen to try and understand is where is the possibility and what's the appetite for all players for there to be a sharing of... of um, for want to have a better term, data, so, so the collection of information that makes up these audit reports. How, um, how can we share that and streamline that process to um, uh, reduce the burden that is, is placed on people? And you know, when, I, when I refer to an audit, at a large scale factory level, that could be a two or three day process for the face-to-face component, but there is enormous amount of effort that um, uh, is required in the lead up to that to prepare all the documentation yeah. and just now, and I, I know it's fair to say that on the surface, all systems should be running at 100% um, compliance anyway, so anyone should be able to knock on the door and say, John, I want to come and order your facility now and you'll be compliant. But, you know, I think we all, all, all know that um, 
that's the ideal, but perhaps not always the reality. I think farmers that have the same experience when you know your, your milk care or whatever the equivalent audit exactly. time comes around, there's there's a fair old paper trail to make at least make sure you've got in order and yeah. prepare for that as well. That, that's right, and you know the third element of our program is really looking at well. What is that process for data collection right along the supply chain? If really the pro that the intent is to um, have a system of collecting information that uh, demonstrates food safety, uh, a good food safety status, and compliance with the regulations, is there a way to utilise technology that might enable us to do that um, in a better way, or perhaps even a continuous way that removes that um, more manual? Uh, intervention that's currently required in the system that we have. So is there a possibility that we could collect information that is useful from a regulatory perspective so that um, compliance is demonstrated without even a physical audit needing to take place at all, or certainly a reduced one, um, but at the same time is there a possibility to have that information available to the farmer, to the processor, to the whoever in the supply chain and allow them to get a forward indication of where things are starting to drift slightly out of control. So as an example, could we get much more earlier indication of uh, a change in animal health status or um, purely a, a conceptual idea here, but could there be a, an early indication of uh, wear and tear of rubber wear, etc. So we're monitoring um, a particular chemical residue, etc. from continuous feed of information. Um, I saw some really fascinating stuff at, on a webinar the other day, that work being done out of Ireland that's starting to track um, DNA profiles of the full microbiome of raw milk right through the system, which is you know, seriously fascinating from a an old man who would take again life as a microbiologist, right? Um, but it's a, a really interesting technology, and part of the the scope of Deep is for us to try and understand what is world's best practice in these areas, and how can we look to be utilising some of that technology in our own industry and develop something that is fit for purpose going forward. Try and avoid forms for the sake of. Forms. Absolutely, you know, it, what, it needs to be purpose driven. If we really want people to undertake some of these activities, it, it's not only um, what it is that they've got to do that we need to communicate clearly, we need to be able to demonstrate why and what is the ultimate benefit for every, every stakeholder. If it's just about allowing um, a regulatory uh, authority to tick a box, um, that's not so exciting for anybody and it's hard to get people to understand why they would want to continue to do that. I guess probably as a writer there, the thing to underpin all of this, of course, is that we're trying to make sure that we in no way jeopardise our current quite good uh, um, trading relationship that we have with most of our trading partners around the world. And um, so whatever we do, whatever changes that we make, we need to be sure that we bring our trading partners along that journey with us. So there'll be some key engagement with them when we get to the point where we've discovered some changes that we want to try and look at and start and, and trial with people. So you know, the DEEP program is set to run over um, three years as a starting point, perhaps longer than that. 
Um, so in the last year of that, the focus will be very much about trying to implement some trials of some new um, systems or new technologies that we want to look at. So we'll be very keen to be finding interested parties to um, to work with us on doing that right from uh, a pharma, uh, the pharma level through the entire supply chain if the technology is applicable for that. Well, I think we've uh, we've probably just about satisfied everyone's appetite for, for regulation. <laughs> there today, we go. But Most um, people have a limit of about 15 minutes, so we've probably done better than that. I'm, um, I think it's worth asking, though. I mean, what, what do you see coming down the pipeline in, in regards to this? I mean, hopefully, obviously, hopefully some, um, some, some innovations or some efficiency around how this, um, you know, how this, this assurance is carried out. Um, but in terms of requirements, I mean, the, you know, a lot of farmers would be aware of, uh, you know, the, the animal rights people are on the march and, um, you know, they, they talk about environmental uh, tariffs and things like that. I mean, what, uh, what do you see as being the key trends in, in this? What, 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 are, what are we going to be asked for more of, you know, in the next five or ten years? It's a good question, and I think you know one of the drivers for us to be looking at what our current system is and how do we reflect what is coming at us. Um, and undeniably, the pandemic um, over the last 18 months um, has seriously increased consumers' um, uh, interest in food safety. There's no question of that. Um, so food safety-related uh, matters will continue to grow, and... Um, consumers wanting um, a much stronger guarantee of what uh, the integrity of the product is that they're buying. Um, but that, as I mentioned before, will come in a number of different forms and, and what consumers in other markets perceive as food safety will be um, broader than what perhaps our context is. So it's likely to include things like um, uh, assurances of, of, of traceability, so having full knowledge of exactly where the raw materials have come from, so in our case where, do, where does the milk originate from. And already we can see in some markets where products carry QR codes and consumers can go along and scan that and have a much more expanded information than what the label provides about where the, where the origin of those ingredients come from. But in many markets, um, also food fraud is a growing concern. So it's about how do we uh, guarantee um, the authenticity of our products and, and have consumers be 100% sure that what is stated on the label and where the product originates from is actually truthful. Yeah. So looking at systems for that. But more broadly, absolutely things around sustainability and environment, environmental impacts are top of mind for consumers, and that ultimately translates into requirements from a regulatory perspective. Um, similarly, animal welfare issues are growing um, in terms of consumer interest as well. So I would expect that all of those things uh, will uh, either become... Uh, technical barriers to trade, for instance, or uh, you know, non-regulatory requirements for products uh, to be able to enter particular markets. But ultimately, if that is not addressed well, um, there will be very much a push for those sorts of areas to be picked up in regulation. Stu, thanks very much for your time. Good on you. Thanks, John. Welcome very much. It's always, always interesting to talk to someone who's uh, got a, a few questions around regs. Thanks to Stuart and John for that insight into the opportunities and challenges facing Australian dairy exporters. I certainly hope you have some luck cutting through all that red tape. As I mentioned at the start, Dairy Australia has just released the June Situation and Outlook report, which shows an air of positivity around the dairy industry in recent months. Favourable weather conditions across most dairy regions 
and higher opening prices in, for milk in 2021-22 suggest that this momentum could be maintained well into next season. The latest National Dairy Farmers Survey shows that 64% of farmers are feeling positive about the future of the industry, up 20% from last year. Furthermore, 88% of those respondents are anticipating making an operating profit in 2020-21, with 63% of those farmers expecting profits to be higher than the five-year average. If you want to read more about the June Situation and Outlook Report, or indeed the National Dairy Farmer Survey, go to dairyaustralia.com.au forward slash SNO. Well, that's it for this episode of Dairy Pod. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from. We'd love to hear about any guests you'd like to hear from or topics you'd like to see covered in future podcasts. So feel free to drop us an email at dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now.